end. All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Dustin, if you don't know me yet or if I haven't met you. Um, second week here as Senior Associate Pastor, and it is a joy to continue our series, Foundations. Uh, and what we've been trying to do in this mini-series is just really look at some of the foundational building blocks, not exhaustively, not everything, of course, in three weeks, especially with me, uh, but some of the key building blocks of what it actually looks like to be the church, to follow after Jesus, and then to live the life that he calls us to. So this week, we're looking specifically at community. And I want to start with a question. As we think about community, we think about what it looks like to actually live the Christian life. The question is, can you define a Christian or define what it means to follow Jesus without mentioning community, without mentioning the church? Just think about it for a second. Some of you are like, I can. Does that mean it's bad? Well, lots can and lots have. Lots have looked at Christianity and defined it as, well, a Christian is someone who has asked Jesus into their heart, who sees Jesus as their personal savior, who is born again and lives life for Jesus, goes to church and reads their Bible. Anybody heard that one? Yeah, well, that's, that's a definition that floats around quite often and quite commonly in our Christian cultures, but also in North American church culture at large. This is an important question because... Our understanding of the Christian life will determine our expectations of community. Are you following? Right? It will. It'll, it'll dictate and, and really determine our expectations of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be doing in community. I saw a recent survey of over 2,000 churches across 15 denominations, and it showed that only about 40% of people who regularly are a part of a church, forget those who are not regularly a part of a church, but regularly attend a church, don't do anything in Christian community outside of Sundays. Right? So what it's showing us is that the majority of churches in our Western culture, the majority of Christians who follow Jesus really have a Sunday-centric view of community and faith. Now, lots of churches are built on that. Another part of this survey asked the three top reasons why you are a part of the church. Here's the top three reasons people are a part of a church. Number one, to get closer to God. That's good, right? Number two, to give their kids a moral foundation. And number three, to become a better person. Now, are those three things bad things? No, of course not. Those are good things. But what did you notice is missing from the reasons why people commit to and belong to the local church? Everybody else, yeah. Others, C community, belonging to a people, and then living out our apprenticeship to Jesus alongside others who are doing the same. That's completely missing from people's general expectation or thought of the church. Belonging to a corporate bigger something, right? Contributing to the work of this bigger something. Being a part of, like we saw last week, the kingdom of God, and being brought home by the king, but also that we know as father because we're sons of daughters. And now guess what? We have a new family. That we're brothers and sisters, right? And I know we say that. She's like, yeah, what's up, family, right? But we don't actually live that out. That's not something that we actually have kind of in the ethos of our regular church experience. But it's so important. And it's vital to our spiritual health. It's vital to the effectiveness of the church, especially Springville, in a post-Christian culture. 
Community is so vital, especially in a culture that has seemed to have really just moved on past some of the stories and worldview and values of the Christian faith, amen? It's vital to recapture this and to practice this well. But I will say there's lots working against a healthy definition of community and healthy expectations of community. Real quick, just a few things that I think are working against us and we have to swim upstream against is the number one thing is a a radical individualism. And we touched on this a little bit last week. Uh, Sociologists are calling it rugged individualism, which just sounds so like dirty, right? It's just rugged, it's rugged individualism. And what that means is that as individuals, that's the primary lens through which we see life that we actually approach life as individuals first and foremost. That's our knee-jerk reaction to how we make decisions, where we live, what, what career we pursue, what we do with our time, our energy, what we do with relationships, and that as individuals, we prioritize personal, private preferences over the health of the collective whole. So as individuals, we get to decide what we do, how we live, because fundamentally, that's how we think about life. And I will just say a little nerdy detail. Sociologists call this um, a weak group cohesion. And that Western culture today is actually a social experiment of one of the only cultures that is trying to hold itself together with a weak group cohesion because of rugged individualism. And with weak group cohesion, what happens is individual happiness and the pursuit of happiness for me overshadows the collective whole and the health of the group. In fact, in a weak group cohesion culture, we actually see strong group cohesion, other cultures of the global south and global east, as oppressive because it's oppressive to the pursuit of self-discovery. That's wild, right? That's the first thing I think that's working against our view of community. Because I think what happens is in churches, if we just have this rugged individualism, Christian community also ends up existing for you and is about you. So you decide what church you'll go to, not which one you'll commit to, because we don't do that, right? But you decide what church you go to if the pastor or the leaders or the programs or the people or the music or the facility or the coffee is up to scratch for you. And if not, guess what? You'll just go down the street. It's in the water. It's in the air we breathe because of this rugged individualism. The second thing is consumerism. The customer is what? Always right. Wrong. Customer's wrong sometimes, right? As consumers, fundamentally, we see everything as a product, a good, or a service. So we have Sunday services, right? It's a product, it's a religious good or service, not a gathering of the church. So as consumers, though, relationships also, we look at them as what can they offer me? And then we pursue newer and better. We're conditioned also to review everything. Have you caught that? Everything. How many stars? Your Uber driver. Mm, right, that restaurant, right? That route that Google Maps took you, rate it out of five. You're like, what? I don't, I don't know, I didn't know other routes. Google Maps is supposed to tell me the five-star route, right? But we're conditioned as consumers not just to consume newer and better, but also to evaluate everything by ourselves <laughs> and for ourselves. So Sunday, today, you'll be like, three stars, <laughs> right? 
But, but we, we giggle, but that really, we, we have to pay attention to this kind of impulse that we have to live all of life, including Christian living and community through the lens as consumers. Third and finally, the third thing I think we're working against before we get to what we are going to get to, this is just the intro, praise the Lord. <laughs> the third thing is the digital age that we live in. It is changing us. Neurobiologists are actually showing that the digital age we live in is literally rewiring our neurochemistry. Like, that's a big deal, right? Like, like that our brain is literally changing because of the digital age that we live in. And now the impact on communities with the digital age, this isn't gonna be an anti-technology point, okay? Just stay with me, young people, all right? But the digital age is showing us that online community or online communities are not only a legitimate form of connection, but it's also a primary form of community. And that's what's happened. That these algorithms and communities online, although fragmented away from me as a person, give me some sense of community, right? And many of us, if we actually pay attention, our identities, uh, our morals, our worldview, our values are actually shaped more by online communities than real flesh and blood community. That's what it's doing to us. And the result is not good. We're, we're struggling right now. The result is that we are lonely, that we are by far the most connected generation of all time and simultaneously the most defragmented, right, and lonely. Um, sociologists are calling it the greatest pathology of our age is loneliness. Another expert called it an emotional epidemic. This is serious. Three out of five people in North America report not just being lonely sometimes, but being chronically lonely. And because of that, we see this fragmentation of who we are and the communities we belong to, and that's leading us to way higher rates of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, way on the rise. And others are saying that it's actually worse than obesity and what it does to our very body. That's loneliness. And what they're showing us is that every single generation is actually becoming more lonely. That's a bad trend. There has to be something that we put a stop on it and say, wait, are we missing something? Is there something that we need to shore up so that we can stop this trend? Because we have the boomers and Gen X is more lonely and then the millennials are even more lonely than Gen Xers and Gen Z is even more lonely than the millennials and alpha generation is even more, right? Like, and you're just like, well, no, no, we have to stop this, right? So it's serious. Last on this point, Shelley Turkle wrote a book called Alone Together. <laughs> She's a psychologist at MIT and listen to what she says about this. People are lonely. The network, digital, is seductive. We expect more from technology and less from each other. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections and the sociable robot may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. Connectivity is way up. Community is way down. Connectivity is not community. 
And so we do need a bit of a course correction on this. And I think that if we look at this from a believer's perspective as Christians, this loneliness is really not the thing we need to fix, but it's a symptom of the thing that's a bit deeper. That you and I, as image bearers, if you remember last week, we were created for meaningful relationships, right? We were created for meaningful relationships to know and be known specifically by the God who made us in his image. Now that's different than Facebook friends, amen? That's different than colleagues at work and coworkers, most of which you don't even like, right? <laughs> colleagues, followers, that's different than followers. Because that's the thing, like YouTube influencers, I have this many followers. That doesn't mean anything about like who you are and your value. Well, because we're created to be known, truly known, and know deeply. We're hardwired for it. And this comes from the distinct Christian teaching of the Trinity. Now, we're not going to solve this because your brain will bleed, okay? But the Trinity is a distinct Christian teaching that, teaching that shows us that God is one, but that God is also a community of self-giving love, perfectly known and knowing. You got it? You figure it out? Okay, good. See, that's it. We solved it. Just kidding. One God, three persons. Now, here's how we understand this. This is important. We're going somewhere, I promise. We have to understand the difference between being and personhood. Being is what makes you what you are. And personhood makes you who you are. So right now, hopefully, what I am is a human being. That's my essence. That's my being. But who I am is not just a human being. Why? Because I am Dustin. Okay, you track him? In this room, we share the same being because we are human beings. That wasn't an anti-pet comment if there's pets in the room. But we share the being, the essence of what we are, but we are distinct persons because we're different in who we are. So the Trinity shows us that God is one in essence, but distinct persons. Solved it. You guys good now? You can go and share that. It's great. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. The Trinity is one of those things that you and I, if we try to figure it out, like we'll just, you'll just like... Short circuit, okay? But that's the best way I think that we can understand the community of the Godhead as Father, Son, and Spirit because if we don't understand the Trinity and the nature and essence of who God is, we actually miss the gospel because the gospel is that we are invited into the experience of this divine community of love. This other-centered, self-giving love of Father, Son, and spirit, that we are invited into that by the work of the Son who brings us to the Father by the work and power of the Holy Spirit, amen. That's the work of the Trinitarian God, right? Now, there's a balance to understand this in the Trinity. We have a balance of sameness yet difference. This is where we're going. <laughs> Healthy communities balance sameness and difference, because it is reflecting God, that balance, imperfectly for sure. God has that sameness and difference perfectly as Father, Son, and Spirit, but we get to reflect that imperfectly. And this is captured all over the New Testament with some of the word pictures that are used of the church. Body, there's sameness and difference. Flock, there's sameness and difference. And especially family. Family. The Greek word is important. It's oikos. Say oikos. Sound great. 
And it means shared name or shared blood. Yet, you're different people. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. I'm related to some of them. And we have the same blood, but trust me, we're different people, right? But, but some of the idioms and word pictures of oikos, it's the smallest social unit in the ancient world, but there's other things like the same fence or the same pot or eating from the same table or sitting at the same fire. There was all these kind of like word pictures that floated around in the ancient world to, pick, to capture oikos, the idea of this social unit that's small and we share something, but yet we're different and distinct. And this is important to understand because if we don't understand that, that we share that blood, that we share, there's something, the sameness about us in Christian community, yet we're also distinct, what'll happen is we'll start to confuse chemistry for community. Uh-oh. This means that you should be and will be in community with people you have very little chemistry with. Anybody who's been walking with Jesus for any time at all is like, Amen. You know those people, and you might be those people. But you've been in spaces where like, I don't feel the same as everybody, but I know we have the same thing going, right? We're very different. There's personality quirks. There's views that are different. There's perspectives that are different. And what, what the temptation has been is like, I don't, I don't know, I just don't fit in this community because it doesn't have much chemistry. You must be in community with people you don't have chemistry with. All the married people said, Amen. You're married, baby. <laughs> sometimes you don't have chemistry, and sometimes the chemistry is just explosion, right? Like, but you're in community together. You're a one. There's a sameness, right? So this is important. This idea of God as, as divine community of love, same yet different, actually shapes the biblical view of community because gospel community is a space of sameness, because we've been rescued, we've been redeemed, we've been invited to the table, yet there's difference because we're all different. Our redemption story is different. Our quirks are different. The things we are saved from are different, but we're saved to the same good Savior. That's Christian community. So you can't unsee it. If you look through Scripture and you're paying attention, you cannot unsee the fact that life in community is at the center of the Christian life. Not Jesus being our savior, but us being invited into and belonging in community. The gospel is powerful because it changes who our life belongs to, amen? Like the gospel does the best work. It's good news because it changes who our life belongs to. First and foremost, our life doesn't belong to me anymore. My life is not mine alone, but it also now belongs to others that I get to walk with. Let's look at Acts chapter two. We're gonna see a few verses, unpack a couple things, and then we are done. I say that now. We're not close to done. Ready, Acts two, verse 41 through 47. Is it up? Yep, okay, we're good. So those who accepted the message of the gospel were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. That's important. They then devoted the church themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone, because of that, was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together, and they held all things in common, community. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. 
every day. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread from house to house and they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people around them. And because of that, every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Did you see some of those verbs in there? Like some of those action words to define Christian community? That they were devoted, they were committed. There was teaching, there was learning, there was praying, there was eating, there was meeting in both homes and in the public square. There was hosting, there was sharing, there was giving, there was practicing generosity, and then there was engaging the city. Now that's community. That's a vibrant community. Notice that it doesn't start, and it says, starts by saying, that day about 3,000 people were added to them. What does that mean? 3,000 people were added to the church, not 3,000 people gave their hearts to Jesus. Did you catch that? That the fundamental evidence that you have actually understood the gospel is that you see yourself as one that is going to be added to the body of Christ. Now, is your heart changed by the gospel? Of course it is. But it's not fundamentally the primary thing you think about when you experience the gospel. And then after the fact that they were added to the church, it just goes, they, 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 right? Plural, plural, plural. And then right at the end, guess what the result is? Many more are getting saved. That life and community actually exists for the witness of the watching world. That there's something distinct about how we live life together that is the strongest evidence of evangelism to the watching world. That's amazing. It's amazing. This is very different than how we would normally think. Even when you hear the word evangelism, you're like, oh, I guess that means I have to get like really good at sharing the gospel in 30 seconds so that that person doesn't go to hell, right? You're like, whoa, whoa, but right here though, evangelism is a community project. Evangelism is the watching world gets to have just peek in the door and see how brothers and sisters live life as they follow after Jesus together. And then they go, what is that? I want some of that. You guys are definitely not perfect. You're weird. But man, that's cool. What is that? But that's not how we think normally. Uh, Joseph Hellerman wrote a very underrated book called When the Church Was a Family. Listen to what he says here. Due to the individualistic tendencies of our culture, it is not uncommon to encounter people who claim to be followers of Jesus but who remain unconnected to a local faith community. If that's not convicting already, just wait. In the New Testament, a person was not saved for the sole purpose of enjoying a personal relationship with God. Indeed, the phrase personal relationship with God is found nowhere in the Bible. According to the New Testament, a person is saved to community. In scripture, salvation is a community-creating event. I think he's right. And if you notice the key word that's kind of laced all the way through Acts 2 is this word devoted, committed, giving like diligent focus and attention to. And it begs the question of us, if you just look at your life right now, not like when you're killing it, but like this week, look at your week, what or who were you most devoted to this week? What you do with a day is what you do with your life. What you do with a week is what you do with your life. So who and what are you devoted to? 
If you look at your week, I look at my week. I can look and go, where did my time and energy and, and money and, and act- relationships actually go? Who was I actually devoted to? And where does Christian community fall into the priorities of who I was devoted to this week? Is it even in there at all? Because here, the church is a community of people that is committed to one another as evidence of their commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ. That they are devoted to following after Jesus together as a diverse learning community. Serving and loving one another and those around them. They're devoted to it. Could it be that if we became more devoted to that, we would actually see more effectiveness in those around us coming to understand the beauty of the gospel? I think yes. Uh, Pastor Dan White in New York State said, in a consumer-oriented time, it becomes utterly normal for people to demand the benefits of community without the inconvenience of commitment. I think that's true too. Again, remember, we're, we're conditioned to evaluate everything and whether it's my jam, right? And we also are very hesitant to commit to anything. We have a commitment phobia, this nag of FOMO, right? FOMO, fear of missing out. It's that nag that just sits there and tells you, no, no, don't settle, because there's always something awesomer, that's a word, uh, around the corner, right? No, no, don't settle for this group of people because it's gotta be something better. So what we do is we don't commit, we don't sink our, our heels in and dig deep roots in community with people and we just keep moving around place to place, church to church, community to community. And we don't grow. You know why? Because those who stay grow. Do you know why? Because your weirdness comes out and conflict happens and you get frustrated with each other and your relationship either dissolves or it gets way deeper. That's the kind of community we see here. And trust me, the book of Acts is full of conflict. I don't know if you missed that. It's not like everyone's walking around like floating like on Zen Jesus juice throughout the book of Acts, right? Like there's all sorts of conflict that happens, but they're devoted to one another. So they're like, it's not even an option to leave each other. Now listen, there was an extra incentive in, 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 book, in the book of Acts because if you left each other, you're just getting your head chopped off or you're getting fed to lions, right? The worst thing that can happen to us is we get an email or a call from the other church that we left and they're like, did you leave? <laughs> So there's not much incentive to even stay. But they're devoted to one another. And honestly, devotion and commitment for the long term is the only thing that will silence that nag of FOMO in your heart. Because the grass is not greener. Trust me. It's not. You think it is. Give it time. The grass will not be green. And then you'll be like, man, if I just stayed. Huh. I wonder if I just stayed. People who stay grow. That's the gift of community. That's the beauty of it. But it's hard, amen? It's very hard. It is both, both the kind of poison and the cure, right? Christian community, walking together. It is hard. And some of us, this is just pastorally, some of us have been deeply wounded in community. And the tendency is to pull away then from Christian community as if that's the problem. But we have to realize that although there are wounds, there are things that will hurt us and relationships that will hurt us, it's also the cure, And if you think about family, most of us, we come from families that we can identify the best things in our life happened in relationship to family members. The highs, we get to celebrate, but also some of the most hurtful. And that's this family too. And we're called into a community that, yeah, there's a cost. 
There, there could be hurt, there could be wounds, but it's also the cure, it's the healing balm to those same wounds that happen in relationship to each other. So what are the four things they're devoted to right here? Number one, if you notice, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Which means that the church fundamentally is a learning community, right? That they are at very different maturity levels, different life stages, different education levels, different socioeconomic brackets, but they are all together a learning community. And sometimes I think we've made community about like theological elitism, as if the whole point of like getting together in community is flexing how much we know about Bible verses, like twisting our mustaches, sitting in our theological armchairs, being like, mm, you're so, what a wise sage, right? But by doing that, by making community about theological elitism, what we've just done is we've just removed the entire posture of being a learning community together, amen? That the church fundamentally is galvanized around the apostles' teaching. But understand that the apostles' teaching in the book of Acts is not just Bible verses, but it's a way of living. Because the apostles just lived all of life apprenticing after Jesus, so the apostles got the gift of being like, oh no, no, I was there. I followed Jesus. I practiced after him and living all of life with him. Come with me as we do that. So it's not just theological knowledge. It's actually prioritizing living and practicing the way of Jesus as we go after him together. That's the first thing. I think we need some course correction here real quick. You need to prioritize learning the Bible in community. You need to prioritize it. The Bible was written by community, for community, to be understood and obeyed in community. In the West, what's happened, church, is that private devos and my personal spiritual practices have become the primary way that I relate to God. So what's happened is quiet times by myself has taken priority over community time. Now, it would be interesting right here if it said that the church was devoted to quiet times and attending church on Sunday, right? But it doesn't. That's not what it says. It says that they were devoted to one another and first and foremost, the apostles' teaching about the way of Jesus. And here's why I think this is important because disconnected from others, a diversity of thought, different people's experiences, different people's perspectives on how they see things, you end up just in an echo chamber by yourself with confirmation biases, not realizing that you do misread scripture. Okay, can I just like release you from that guilt, that weird weight? You misread scripture. That's okay. We all do. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the gifts that God has given the church. Teachers and people that have the privilege or curse of for hours and hours, every single week, <laughs> nerding out about stuff in here that you don't care about, right? So just release you from that guilt and that burden. You do misread scripture, but it's, that's exactly why we need each other. Community actually forces us out of echo chambers. It forces us out of our own little private devo with Jesus. It forces us into diversifying our conversation partners, and it opens our world up beautiful. So if everyone that you spend time with as a believer or listen to or read or follow on whatever platform already agrees with you and affirms everything you already think, you will not grow. You will not be challenged. You will not learn. 
You'll live in an echo chamber of confirmation bias and never actually see anything outside of a perspective that's already your own. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Personal study and disciplines are very important and very necessary, but not more important than life lived in community. Are you with me on that? So prioritize getting around God's word with others. By the way, I think community is actually the antidote to tribalism. Anybody notice just like a flare-up of tribalism over the last couple years? Well, that's because we weren't with each other, right? Community is actually based on belonging and who and what we're for. But tribalism is based on exclusion and who and what we're against. And it was very easy over the last couple years just to sit on the internet behind our keyboards and decide who or what we're against. And I actually think uh, the tribalism that we see in our culture will be met and, and, and healed by community as followers of Jesus. All right, number two, what else are they devoted to? Told you, we gotta go, all right. Number two, fellowship. That word there is koinonia, say koinonia. Yeah, it's a good one. And it means sharing, it means partnership. It means keeping company with. And if you notice what was being shared, what was being shared? Well, not just a commitment to faith, but everything, right? All of life, highs, lows, meals, money, like time, energy, was all being shared together. They were sharing and practicing the Christian life together. So first and foremost, the Christian community is a learning community, but it's also a practicing community that we're partnered, we're sharing together. That's number two. Number three, if you notice, they were breaking bread together. It's repeated a couple times in those verses. In verse 46, it says that they were breaking bread in their homes, right? And that is vital because meals and the table were the centerpiece of the early church's experience of community. The table was. Not, not stages, not, not pulpits, in auditoriums, but tables in homes. Now listen, I'm not trying to preach myself out of a job, okay? This is good. This is good and necessary. But not at the expense of the gathered community at the table. And all throughout church history, you can see that meals were the main, not only, main place that the church practiced community. It was the main place. Not a secondary thing that, if, well, maybe a couple times I'll get somebody over and then I'll be hospitable because Jesus, you know? It's like the primary place where community happened. And what's really fascinating is for the first 300 years of the church's lifespan, they didn't meet in cathedrals or buildings, but in homes. That, that's, that's pretty vital. So what we need to do is we need to fight not to lose table fellowship, amen? We, we can gather in other spaces and experience community in other places, definitely, and they're good, but we have to fight to maintain table fellowship as well. So the takeaway there is that Sundays are good and necessary, but they're not enough. Because, Springville, it's possible to get better at attending church and worse at following Jesus. It's possible. And we want to avoid that. We want to actually get around the New Testament's one another's. Because, listen, there's, there's over 70 one another's in the New Testament, and almost none of them we can practice on Sundays. <laughs> Where do we practice them then? Where do we practice teaching one another, eating with one another, having equal concern with one another, serving one another, carrying one another's burdens, forgiving one another? Where do we practice that? I would argue at the table, in community. But this requires a paradigm shift for us, right? Of seeing church as a community of people that I belong to, 
instead of a, a service that I enjoy or I attend. A shift from learning to disciple one another in community instead of relying on kind of Christian professionals or staff to do the work of ministry. It requires a shift to see our homes and our, our tables and our couches and our porches as a primary place of gospel ministry. It's a, it's a paradigm shift for us. The fourth thing that's happening here is prayer. Every time God shows up and does something amazing and crazy in the book of Acts and throughout history, it's in response to corporate prayer. Good timing, because we have prayer tonight. So now you're convicted and now you're gonna come, okay? But praying together, again, not solo prayer. That's good, we wanna pray solo. But prayer together, God does something special and flexes his muscles in a unique way when the people of God come together in desperation and weakness and say, God, we need you. I don't know, can't explain why, but he does. Because prayer is where we practice weakness, right? That we're not self-sufficient, that we're not self-made, that we actually need him. One of my favorite revivalist preachers is the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, read the histories and accounts of every revival and they have always known a state of utter desperation and final despair. Prayer is where we get to practice that. So I'm convinced, Springville, that with these four distinctives, this idea of, of community, that one of the most profound impacts that we can have in our own spiritual lives and the lives of others, but also on our culture around us is to commit to and practice Christ-centered community. And it's hard, and it's messy, and sometimes there's no chemistry, and sometimes you walk away and you're like, I don't know, but I'm gonna con continue to commit and devote myself to this because Jesus, right? And what we get to do today is we actually get to close and respond with something that was the centerpiece of the table in communion, right? And it's no surprise that Jesus chose the table, chose a meal as the symbol of his work on the cross, and as the future symbol of the marriage supper and the lamb that we will get to enjoy. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says that when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? That the table is the centerpiece of community where we're reminded not just of our distinctiveness, but our shareness, our sameness, right? I'll leave you with this. Sky Jatani says this about communion. At the Lord's table, we are guests. We are each invited and welcomed by Christ. We do not choose who we share the meal with. We do not place an order. We do not customize our beverage. Instead, we all receive the same bread and drink from the same cup. At the Lord's table, we are all humble recipients of the same unmerited grace. Today we get to answer that invitation in community. All different, but all in need of that same unmerited grace. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we're so thankful that even those of us, as we've been far off, that you've chased us down, you've rescued us, you've brought us home to the table, that we belong that we belong because of what you've done for us, but that also we are becoming something different because of your work in us. I pray that this morning we would see that fresh, that we would be called out into community, that we would fight for 
commitment and devotion to your people because that's your heart for your people. And I pray for especially those of us who have been wounded and are still working through wounds or scars of relationships and community that you would use gospel community to heal that. We come needy and desperate as we take, as we look to you, we ask that you would show us that not only do we belong, but that we are also becoming who you've called us to. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.